I don't know if you've ever had this experience in, in, uh, in a, a, another church that has pictures of uh, Jesus and scenes from the Bible on the wall. But uh, it's very common in my experience to, to find a, a picture of Jesus, you know, sitting in a field with, with his shepherd staff and a bunch of lambs around him. Or Jesus sitting in the midst of people and the children on his lap. Um, kind of these serene depictions of Jesus in his life. And they're taken from the scriptures. But what's noticeably absent, I find, and you'll also find the crucifixion scenes, maybe an empty tomb. But usually what you don't see are scenes like, like we encounter today when, when Jesus is walking. Uh, it's wintertime. He's, he's walking under the, the, the porch, Solomon's colonnade in the temple. And uh, a bunch of Jews surround him. And they start demanding of him, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? And they're really not interested to know if he is or isn't, but they're hoping that he says something so that they can accuse him. They've already tried to kill him a couple of months before um, at the end of John 8. They picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. You kind of wonder, it was his father's house if he kind of knew some secret channels. Somehow he just knew how to get out of there when, when they were about to kill him. So that was a couple of months before at the Feast of Booths. Now it's the Feast of Dedication, which we know as Hanukkah, um, in the winter. He's surrounded by a bunch of Jews, and he starts talking to them, and it says that the Jews picked up stones again to stone him, twice in two months. And you have this controversy. Jesus was controversial. And that's normally not something you see depicted in the, in the art. It's also not something that you pick up on in children's Bibles. I've maybe read a couple dozen different children's Bibles, varying levels, um, you know, age-appropriate levels. And what seems to be common throughout is, you, you know, once you get to Jesus, has all these stories and these teachings and these parables of Jesus. And then all of a sudden, boom, he's in Jerusalem and everybody wants to kill him. <laughs> it's like, where did this come from? You know, so we're like teaching our children Everything was dandy, and then they just decided they were jealous and they wanted to kill him. Um, but it was actually a theme that increased, especially as Jesus moved toward Jerusalem for the festivals, uh, that he, he, would, he would confront the powers um, on earth and also the powers in heaven. Um, and he was a controversial figure, and sometimes they wanted to do violence against him. But as he said in last week's uh, reading of the gospel, I lay down my life that I may take it up. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus, even in the, in the you know, looking out at the angry mob with stones in their hands, he, he wasn't frightened. He could, he could keep his cool. I, at, one, at one point, not in John's gospel, Jesus just walks through the crowd when they're about to push him off a cliff. In Galilee, just walks through them. And you just wondered, did he just stare them down? You know, like, what are you going to do to me? Because he had confidence in his father's hands, which protected him. And he knew that it was his, uh, his initiative to lay down his life for the, his sheep at the appropriate time. The point being, Jesus was controversial. Why? Why was he controversial? Well, he said some things about himself that made people uncomfortable. And 
as we've mentioned several times as we've been preaching through this gospel, John the evangelist, the gospel writer, he's at, he's at pains to show one thing primarily in the whole gospel narrative. Um, he's answering a single question. And the question is, who is Jesus? Who is he? Again and again and again, he's, he's, he's answering that. He's doing it in different angles. Uh, and this is one of the most explicit uh, explicit presentations of the identity of Jesus out of Jesus' own mouth. Uh, back in John 8, he said, before Abraham was, I am, and he invokes the name of Israel's covenant God, Yahweh, I am that I am. And they almost, they, you know, they tried to stone him for that. And now here he elaborates a couple months later. It's still fresh on their, on their memory. They know what he said back in October. Now it's December. That's an anachronism, but you get what I mean. And here's what he says to them. They say, tell us, are you the Christ? And he says, I already told you. My actions speak louder than words. But you don't believe because you're not my sheep. Notice that he doesn't say, you're not my sheep because you don't believe. He says, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. You are unbelieving because the Father has not given you to me. That would make me uncomfortable. You're saying that I can't bring myself to you? It's the work of the Father? That's what he's saying. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one's able to snatch them out of his hand. And then he says, I and the Father are one. At that point, they reach down, grab some stones. I don't know why there's stones sitting in the temple, but apparently they're just sitting there. And they're ready to stone him. So, once again, he's conflating his own identity with the one true God that they have worshipped in covenant since the time of Moses, 1,500 years before. So Jesus responds to this display of aggression. I've shown you many good works from the Father. And he has. He's done all of these signs. Most recently, the sign of healing the man who was born blind. And they approached the man, and the question on their lips was, what do you say of this man who healed you? Is he from heaven, or is he from, from the earth? And the man's like, well, of course he's from heaven because who's ever, who's ever healed the blind? But they're unbelieving. They come back with the same question. Tell us, are you the Messiah or are you not? I've shown you these many good works from the Father, these gifts to you. Of which of them are you going to stone me? And they answered him, well, it's not because of the good works that you've been doing. Rather, it's because of your blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself God. Then Jesus opens up a can of worms. And he says, Is it not written in your law, which is shorthand for the whole Old Testament, because then he quotes from the Psalms, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, and they would nod their heads, that's true, Jesus. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, 
You are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me and what I'm saying verbally, at least believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. But again, they seek to arrest him and he escaped from their hands and then he goes away. And some follow after him and they trust in him. I said that Jesus opened up a can of worms, a controversial can of controversy. Um, He quotes from Psalm 82. And this is a can of worms that I'm going to have to substantiate a little bit. So we're going to kind of go on a little bit of a journey and you'll have to follow with me for a moment. So let me read Psalm 82. It's a short Psalm and it's very unique. There's no other Psalm like it. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. He says to them, how long will you judge unjustly? and show partiality to the wicked. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. That's God's charge to his divine counsel, whom he calls gods. And then he says about them, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness and all the foundations of the earth are shaken because of them. I said, You are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And so the psalmist concludes, Arise, O God, judge the earth, you shall inherit the nations. Why is this a can of worms? Well, it's because the way that most most people in most recent times Understand Psalm 82 is God speaking to human judges and calling them gods and calling them sons of the Most High, sons of God. We'll go back to John 10 in a moment, but follow with me. But every other time in the Old Testament that the sons of God are referred to, it seems that God is referring to not humans, not even lofty humans, rulers, judges, kings, but actually to angelic beings. So, as Brooke read to us this morning in Job 1, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came from among them. Satan, one of the sons of God, not the only begotten son of God. Jesus is unique in that category, but there are these other sons of God. Or back in Genesis chapter 6, it says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Later, the Nephilim are referred to as giants, and their descendants, when they weren't so giant, uh, among uh, among their descendants was Goliath of Gath. P. 
people puzzle over Genesis 6. Is he talking about kings, wicked kings, that were entering a sexual union with righteous daughters from the line of Caleb? Or is there something a little more supernatural going on? Angels, principalities, powers, transgressing their boundaries as spiritual beings and entering into these relations with the daughters of men and the offspring being something that is grotesquely human. Then you get Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. He says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Who is this divine council? Where do they come from? Why are they judging? Why are they judging the nations? And why are they doing a horrible job of it? So that the psalmist at the end of Psalm 82 says, arise, O God, you judge the earth. Why don't you inherit all of the nations? Well, this is where it comes from. In Deuteronomy 32, beginning in verse 7, he says, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. Here's the key. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, think Tower of Babel, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. In this section of Deuteronomy, Moses, he, he kind of pulls back the veil. What was God doing when he scattered the people at, at Babel and they became 70 nations? Well, Moses says that he divided them according to the number of the sons of God, but that Israel was his inheritance. So God was the ruler of Israel. They were his nation, but the other nations of the earth, he gave to principalities and powers. And you get echoes of this throughout the scriptures. You might remember in Daniel chapter 10, I told you this was a bit of a journey, but this is something that we often miss today, particularly in our modern mindset. We don't think of the supernatural. In Daniel chapter 10, Daniel has had a dream and he's troubled by it and he's asking God, he's fasting and asking God for revelation and then an angel comes to him and here's what it says, Daniel 10 uh, beginning in verse 12, then he said to me, fear not Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. Now get this. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. You just get these little snippets here and there throughout the Old and the New Testament where where, where most of the Bible is concerned with what we see and what God, what God is doing in the realm that we can see. But then you get Job chapter 1. You get Deuteronomy 32. You get Genesis 6. You get here in Daniel 10. And all of a sudden we get a little cosmic. And we get this little glimpse into the heavenly places. The warfare, the battle, the controversy that is happening that we normally don't see. In Daniel 10, the angel says to him, 
there is a prince of Persia. And later he says, next, I'm going to contend with the prince of Greece. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You beginning to see it? These glimpses into the heavenly places? That when God scattered the people at Babylon, he established the nations and they were ruled not by men merely, but that they were spiritual beings, principalities, powers, rulers, authorities, having dominion over the nations of the earth. And they're doing a terrible job at it. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Look at the history of the world. Look at all the pagan nations. Did they reward righteousness or did they favor wickedness? Well, they're led by principalities following the prince of the power of the air, the Satan, rewarding wickedness, not giving justice to the weak and the fatherless, not intervening in the affairs of man to deliver those uh, who are being oppressed by the wicked. Because of the, the job that these principalities and powers have done, he says that the foundations of the earth are shaken, and so he issues a judgment. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment and he says, I said, you are gods, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. This is what Jesus is referring to in John chapter 10. When he says, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If you don't have the divine counsel view, this understanding that the sons of God are these angelic beings that have authority. If you, if you, if you take the view that this is just humans, elevated princes, rulers, kings, judges, then Jesus is defeating his own argument about who he is. Here he is making claims about his oneness with the Father, his deity. Here John is trying to show us in his gospel that Jesus is more than just a man. He is the only begotten Son of God, and by believing in him, you have eternal life. But if he says, well, the psalmist says that to, to Israel and to their judges, you guys are gods, and so it's okay for me to say that I'm a god. I'm just a human just like these guys. He's not substantiating his argument. But what he's actually saying, because he holds, he, he knows there is a divine counsel. There are the sons of God, these angelic beings. He says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the word of God came in Psalm 82 in that divine counsel, God's word of judgment came to them. If he, if he called them gods to whom the word, word of God came, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? He's making a case for himself. And it's not merely that he's one of those sons of God. He's not just saying, I'm one, I'm one of those principalities and powers that have been sent into the world. I am unique. 
because I am one with the Father. So that when it's his judgment being issued in Psalm 82 against these wicked principalities, these evil rulers of the air, when he issues his judgment on them and says, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince, Jesus himself is there. He's one with the Father, and he is the one issuing that judgment. The psalmist says, arise, O God, judge the whole earth. You shall inherit all the nations. And earlier in Psalm 2, when the nations plot in vain together against God and against his anointed, his Messiah, they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten me. Sorry, I have begotten you. And now get this. Ask of me. Ask of me, the father says to the Messiah, his son, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Ask of me and you will receive the nations as your inheritance. The ends of the earth shall be yours. Who did they belong to? Prior to Christ and his coming, who did they belong to? They belonged to those that God had given them to as an inheritance, the sons of God. This is why in Matthew, when Jesus is tempted by Satan, Satan takes him up to a high mountain and says, Behold the kingdoms of the earth. I will give them to you. You can rule over them if you will bow down to me. He's talking to God's only begotten son. He knows Jesus' status, and yet he's making him a true offer. They are mine to give. You can have them if you will worship me. But Jesus came to bind the strong man, as he says in his parable, to throw him out, to cast him out, basically to invade and make the house his. The whole earth, all the nations will be his. And he's going to purchase them, not by giving his allegiance to Satan, the prince of the power of the air, but by laying down his life as an offering to the Father, purchasing them at the cost of his blood. That's the end of the journey. We did it. Old Testament and new we get this cosmic controversy. And Jesus opens up that can of worms here in John 10. He says, I am the son of God. I am the one who is going to judge these principalities and powers. And you don't listen to me and you don't believe me because you are not my sheep. But my sheep hear my voice and they follow me and I give them eternal life. I give them the life that is everlasting and the life that is characterized by the everlasting ways. Not, not after death, but eternal life beginning now. According to John 3, we've already passed from death into eternal life when we have faith in Jesus, our good shepherd. So what does all of this mean? It means that in this world you will have trouble. It means that when God told the serpent that his seed 
would always have enmity with the woman's seed, the seed of promise, God was, God was being truthful. There is an antithesis in the world. There are those to whom Jesus is a fragrance unto life. And there are those, when they smell Jesus, it's death to them. And church, this is, this is nothing new, but, but we're beginning to experience this more and more. It's been said uh, recently that in our nation, prior to 1994, to, to bear the name of Christ, to call yourself a Christian was advantageous. Then roughly between 94 to 2015, it was kind of neutral. It didn't, it didn't gain you anything to be identified as a Jesus follower, but it also wasn't, wasn't harmful to your reputation, to your prospects. After 2015, negative, negative associations. Controversy. There is an antithesis. In church, we don't, we don't need to listen to the voice of those who hate Jesus and try to be winsome to them. We need to love them, but we don't need to be winsome to them in such a way that we stop listening to the voice of our shepherd and begin following them, which is the danger. And it can be out of a good desire, out of love for our neighbors, but it can also be out of a fear of their opinion of us. Jesus has saved us from the bad shepherds and from the wolves who would seek to devour us. He gives us the ways of everlasting life, but we must listen to his voice. We must be attuned to his voice, not the voice of your Facebook feed or your Twitter feed or whatever Google's algorithm is feeding you in the news cycle. We must listen to the voice of our shepherd because he leads us to green pastures and gives us everlasting life. There is controversy at a cosmic level and we experience it every day. We experience it uh, as a society, and we experience it as individuals. Paul says uh, so much when he, in the famous passage, says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's who we're battling against. That's who's behind all this hatred of Christ, feeding people hatred of Christ, and therefore hatred of his people. But we're not contending against those who hate us here. We are contending against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. How do we do so? Taking up the whole armor of God, that we may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayers and supplications. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. 
and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador and I would say we are all ambassadors that we may declare it boldly as we ought to speak. This is how we fight back against the principalities and powers. The weapons of our warfare, they're not political weapons. They're not material weapons. They're prayer. They're the proclamation of the word, the speaking of truth, the Christian community reconciled to one another, standing as a witness to the world of God's power, the mysteries of his gospel. I think I would leave us with this. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul makes this prayer to the Lord. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering our Lord Jesus Christ. Sorry, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? What is that power? It's the power that is according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, and he has put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What this means, friends, is that because Jesus is exalted, he's been enthroned at the right hand of the Father, every authority from Satan on down has been placed under his feet, and Jesus has been given as head to his body, the body of Jesus, including the feet. That means that every principality and power is beneath our feet. It's why Paul says in Romans that we're about to stomp Satan, trample him underneath our feet. This is what we do, and the gates of Hades will not overcome. The assault that we bring to the kingdom of darkness, waging the weapons of the warfare that our good shepherd has equipped us with, to preach the gospel, to pray, to love, to sing, to worship. This is how his kingdom grows. These are the everlasting ways. Jesus has saved us from the bad shepherds, from those who would say that you need to vote this way, you need to hold these policies, you need to have this view of man. Jesus has saved us from that. We must listen to his voice must listen to his voice and, and maybe turn down the volume of the other voices. Let us pray. God, we do ask that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of yourself, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we would know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints from every nation. Would you give us revelation that we would know the immeasurable greatness of your power that is available to us who believe. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, seated him at your right hand, 
above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. Lord, we ask that you would help us to live like this is true, like we are the body of Christ, having authority on earth, waging the weapons of the warfare that you have given us, demolishing strongholds, standing firm in the day of evil. Make us a light to the world. Your kingdom come, and your will be done. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.